Let's do this. First Kings 11. First Kings 11. Let me kind of really quickly, as best as I can, explain to you the story of Israel. Um, it really begins with a guy named Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac, then Jacob, then the 12 sons, make it the 12 tribes of Israel. You have them go into exile, slavery. You have Moses lead them out. You have Joshua lead them into the promised land. You have them being ruled by judges. That brings us to 1 Samuel. They're going, we want a king. We want a king like everyone else. So God gives them the king they wanted, that's Saul. Then God gives him the king that he wants, that's David. David is the one true king. <laughs> He's the king that um, God has for them in many ways. David obviously, he fails, he falls, he's human. Uh, but what we see is David still was a man after God's heart. David was the king who really brought all 12 tribes together under his kingdom. Then you see God named Solomon, David's son. Solomon is the wise king. We've been talking about Solomon. That's kind of the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings. Here's where we're at today in chapter 11. This is a very pivotal portion of scripture. Um, 1 Kings 11 kind of changes everything. It, it changes the whole direction of the story of Israel. It goes from being one kingdom to two kingdoms. This is essentially where that kingdom ends. It's sad. It's tragic. Uh, this is where Solomon basically, finally, God is like, I'm done. You're continuing in sin. You're unrepentant. You're practicing this. Your kingdom will now be two kingdoms. Um, this is actually chapter 12. We're introduced to Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Maybe if you've, if you've ever wondered or struggled with like the history, like how does this play? How does this work out? Uh, just, you know, first Kings and second Kings were one book, right? It's one long book, one big book, one big scroll. First Kings 11, like I said, this is where things change. You have Rehoboam. He's the son of Solomon who ends up leading uh, Judah of the southern kingdom. This is the capital is Jerusalem. This is where the temple is. Then you have a guy, and we're going to be introduced to him in this chapter, and then we'll see him next week. Jeroboam. Jeroboam becomes the king over the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. You have the 10 tribes up there, one tribe primarily uh, with Judah. Judah is that tribe. And you have the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. This is where then you see different prophets to different kingdoms. This is when you'll see, we'll be following the, the storyline of northern kingdom kings, what kind of kings they're like, southern kingdom kings. This is probably where you do get confused when you read, like, I don't know what king was which kingdom. We'll hopefully make that clear as we walk through this, but this is where that great divide kind of happens. The reason why I bring this up is um, when you guys came, the last, we've been going through first, second Samuel, now first Kings. We gave you this little like booklet. Next week, we'll have a new booklet. So we've called this a like, kingdom united. Next week, we'll see kingdom divided and it'll kind of a new time frame. I do want you to see the big picture here. Obviously, this is not the heart or will of God for the kingdom to split. But this is what he says, Solomon, because of your decision, here's what's going to happen. The kingdom's going to split because you gave into your, your sin. So chapter 11 changes everything. I think it's ironic because chapter 11 for us is a term we use to like file bankruptcy, like, a, you know, filing chapter 11, whatever. Like that's what's happening to Solomon. He's basically filing bankruptcy. Um, we're told last week that this is basically, this is the direction Solomon's going in. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, here's what it says. Uh, God says, neither shall the king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. This is exactly what Solomon does. God says, one day when the king rules and reigns, don't multiply wives. This is the chapter we're introduced where Solomon has 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's that, we're like introduced that big idea. Solomon did exactly what Deuteronomy 17 said not to do. God's like, what are you doing? You've already multiplied horses. You've already went to Egypt. You already did all the things I said not to do. And so God's like, the kingdom's gonna split. But I'm going to do it with your son. Because in light of your father, David, your son's going to experience the split. And you see Solomon die, then you see Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Cool. Do you guys kind of see the big picture? I want you to kind of hear that or know what's going on here. Here's how I titled today's message, because chapter 11 is heavy. It's heartbreaking. There was so much hope with Solomon. 
a man who wrote so much scripture, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and this guy has a tragic ending. The reason why I want to bring this up is, and I think for us, um, we have to learn from Solomon. Um, the title today simply is Gaining the World, Losing Your Soul. Gaining the World, Losing Your Soul. Solomon is such an interesting character in scriptures where he gets it right so many times and gets it wrong so many times. And I and we have to learn from Solomon. Here's a guy who literally had the world, essentially, but in the process lost his soul. So I want to read this. I want to look at this. I want to learn from this. I hope this is, again, more than us studying scripture, more than just a Bible study per se, but saying, like, Holy Spirit, what is it you want to say to me, to us, to our community? Um, God, what is it you want to do in us? How do we not repeat this? How do we learn from Solomon? How do we also see that there is a better king who gave up his soul in exchange for the world, in a sense? There's a better king who did the opposite of what Solomon did. He gave it all so that he might win the world to himself. That this also creates a longing in our hearts for, for a better king. So 1 Kings 11, why don't we just read actually verse 1 through 14. I just want us to see kind of what's going on in this text. Verse 1 through 14, and then we'll pray and look at it more in depth. 1 Kings chapter 11, let's read verse 1. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite, women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall uh, they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. So many jokes. We could, I'm just going to skip all the jokes. All right, just insane. Uh, and his wives turned his, away his heart. Verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did all for his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Verse nine. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statues that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Verse 14, it says, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, he was, he was of the royal house in Edom. Gaining the world, losing your soul. Just want to pray, ask the Lord to speak, to move. This is a wonderful case study, honestly, when it comes to how to deal with idols, how to deal with counterfeit gods that can pop up in our lives. And so let's just pray and give this time to the Lord. Father, um, we don't want to just read it and forget it. Lord, I, I just ask that um, as we walk through your word, that we would learn from Solomon, 
that Jesus, you would do something in my heart, in our hearts, that we would not forget you. We would not walk away. We would not let our hearts be turned after other gods, after other little counterfeit gods. Um, Jesus, we ask that you would have your rightful place in our lives. God, help us to learn from, from Solomon. Help us to learn from your word. But Jesus, we ask that you would be that true king, the king who reminds us, the king who, who shows us, um, God, you gave it all for us. Lord, you, you surrendered it all f- so that we might be with you. And we just thank you. We just need you. Lord, we ask that you would bring application where you need to, that you'd bring change. Lord, we just, um, we don't want to do life. We don't want to do this without you. So we need you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen. You know, um, growing up, and I, I still think to this day, I'm one who likes to ask questions. Like, I like to ask questions. I'm very curious. I like to just talk to people, ask questions. I was probably that obnoxious kid that just asked way too many questions. Still that obnoxious kid who asked too many questions. Um, I, you don't tell us, I had so many teachers, you know, saying growing up, hey, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Um, you don't tell a sixth grade boy that I would find a way to ask a dumb question. Like, oh, really? There's no such thing as a dumb question. I'll show you. That was kind of my thing. I don't know. I just, I have so many questions about life and about things. And it's funny to me because now I'm on the other end where I have little kids and all they do is ask questions. And I get a little taste of my own, I think, medicine, um, which is they just ask countless limitless questions. And it's fun. Some are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you asked that. Okay, here we go. Um, It's overwhelming at times, but there's something about asking questions. You know, my wife is one who, she hates uh, a dumb question, right? I can no longer in my home begin a sentence with saying, honey or babe, where is my dot, dot, dot. I can't do that. I can no longer say, hey babe, where's my cell phone? Where's my key? I'm not allowed to ask that. I still ask it. But she hates that question, right? Um, There's certain questions that just get under our skin. There's some questions that I, I, again, I love someone who asks really good questions. If you ever sat down with someone who has like really genuine, heartfelt questions, like this is awesome. This is so cool. Um, I think in this text, it reminds me of, I think, the two most important questions Jesus ever asked in his life. Um, Two questions Jesus asked in Mark 8, 36. He said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. And then he says, and what would a man give in exchange for his soul? What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? It's crazy because I used to think about this verse when I was like a kid and think, man, like maybe people would give up like their soul for like a billion dollars or something big, something epic. In reality, I, I think what happens all the time is people exchange their soul for small things. People exchange their soul for a moment, for an experience, for relationship. Jesus is basically saying your soul, like the world is not worth your soul. Even if you got the whole world, everything you ever wanted, it's not worth giving up your soul for that. And yet what we see so often is people give up their soul for the smallest things, for the simplest things, for something they thought would bring them pleasure. You know, there's a really fascinating verse in 1 John 5. It's really weird to me. First John is this book of love God, love others. This is how you're known by your love. The last verse of First John, First John 5, First John 5, 21, he literally says, last verse, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It is the most out of place verse, I think, like in the Bible. He's basically like, love God, love others. This is how you're known for your love. In conclusion, keep yourselves from idols. I'm like what? There's something fascinating about that to me. In light of loving God, in light of loving others, don't let idols crowd into your heart and life. Don't let idols steal your love. 
there's something about even this idea that I don't think we like that verse. It gives us an action. You, he's saying like, you keep yourself from idols. It's not someone else's job. You keep yourself from idols. Keep your little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's when we hear that term idols, I still think we maybe have like this, I don't know, archaic, ancient like mindset towards idols. Like we still think of like little statues or little things, like little shrines maybe. I still have this idea of like maybe East Asia, little, I don't know, candles being lit, pictures, little Buddha things. Like I still think of idols in that way. When in reality, idols isn't really used in that way. Idols can come in so many shapes and forms. Idols can be ideologies that we carry or, or hold on to. It can be just desires of the heart. It can be something just taking the place of God. You know, this is what it says in Ezekiel 14. God says these men, or the, the elders of Israel, have set up their idols in their hearts. They set these, their idols in their hearts. Of, of course, in their minds, like, God, we don't, we don't practice idolatry. We don't have these little idols. We don't, we don't carve these graven images to you. But he's like, no, no, idols are not, it's not a thing. It's, it's something that lives in you. It's in your heart. It's that famous John Calvin statement where he says, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's so true because it just seems like my life is constantly producing a new idol. As soon as I think I overcame a sin, or as soon as I think I'm done with this, that's the old me, a new idol springs up. And you kind of feel like your whole life is like, this new idol wants to take the throne of your life, and like, you battle that, and then a new one, and you battle that, and it's like, when will this stop? He says, the heart is this this perpetual idol-making factory. We have to be, that's why John's like, keep yourselves from idols. To me, 1 Kings 11 is a case study on what idols or idolatry will do to your life. How you love them. How your heart just follows after them. How eventually idols divide your home. They divide your house. Divides your life. And so I want to like approach this and learn from Solomon because he allowed these idols to creep in maybe through his wives and let them do their own thing to now I'll embrace them to now I'm making sacrifices to them. And you saw this like subtle, perpetual growth of idolatry in his heart. So I want to walk through this text again. And the way I'm going to break this up, the way we're going to see this is, uh, first one is this, idols demand your love, idols divert your heart, and idols divide your house. This is kind of what we see happening. So idols, number one is this, idols demand your love. They'll always demand your love in some way. Let's read again verse one. I want to, I want to see the context. First Kings 11 verse one. Here's what it says. Now King, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Namanite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. So Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Two times it says this, Solomon loved many foreign women. Solomon clung to these in love. All right, I want you to see like his idea of love just blinded him. He clung to them in love. He loved many foreign women. I suggest it probably wasn't love, right? When you have a thousand, it's probably more lust than it was love, but notice how it's, it's worded. I, I think this is something we see. It's funny to me that Solomon of all people, Solomon who wrote in, in Proverbs constantly to his, my son, my son, beware. Like Solomon basically warned his son, watch out for the temptress, watch out for the woman who will t- steal your heart. And that's what happens to Solomon. Solomon said this in Proverbs 5.20. He says, for why should you, my son, be enraptured by the immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? And this is what happens to Solomon. Solomon, obviously, we, we call him like the wisest fool, right? Very wise man who didn't take his own advice. That could be myself. That could be any one of us. We have to learn from Solomon. Just because you know it doesn't mean you know it. He loved these women. He clung to them in love. 
I try to write out this way because I think this is huge. Um, love doesn't justify your decision making. What I see from Solomon is, and what I, what I see in our day, is this idea of, well, I love them, so therefore I can do X. But I love them. I don't know how many times I've heard that over the years. It's like, Josiah, but I, I just love them. I'm like, okay, and? Just because you love someone or something um, doesn't mean it's pleasing to God to act on that love. I want to be really clear with that. This one hurts us because there's, there's, this, there's this competing battle for our love. And idols demand your love. God demands your love. And again, I want, to be, I want to say that again. Just because you love something or someone, it doesn't mean it's pleasing to God to act on that love. I do think in our day, for some reason, like this idea of love is a get-out-of-jail-free card. But I love them, so therefore I can do whatever I want. I'm like, I don't know if that's how love works. And I think we have to be aware of this. And I don't want to downplay this. I get it. If you love someone, you think, well, why would God give me these emotions and feeling for someone and not let me act on them? What kind of God would do that? And I, kind of write, I try to write this out because I do hear this objection a lot. Here is that objection. God wouldn't give me desires and then tell me not to act on them. Hear me, people say that a lot. Why would God give me these desires and don't act on them? I say, first of all, God does not give you those desires. The Bible is really clear. By nature, we are children of wrath. God did not give you those desires, okay? And why would God give me those desires and tell me not to act on them? I'm sorry, the story of the gospel, the first word in Jesus' mouth in ministry was literally, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, I don't know if we realize, like, Jesus is the most loving human being on planet Earth, and everyone loves loving Jesus, but do we love the Jesus who says, repent? See, he's not just, the, he's not just a God who says, I love you. And that, that means, what does love mean? Again, we kind of use love like, hey, if you love someone, you, you, you just kind of blindly take everything. No, like love, I love you so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the hard thing. I'm going to do the hard thing. I love you. I care for you. Jesus who says simply repent, or Jesus who literally says in Luke 9 and Mark 8, he goes, deny yourself. Why would God ever give me these, act, these desires and not let me act on them? Jesus literally says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, pick up the cross daily and follow me. My, my point of this is saying, um, love, just because you love someone or something, it is not a get out of jail free card to act on those emotions. Listen, Jesus loved the world. Jesus loves you. That is not his love. His agape love for you does not turn into some erotic love that he acts upon. My, my point of saying is you can, we have this really weird idea that if you love someone, therefore it must become romantic. It must become erotic. It must become sexual. It must become physical. No. Jesus loved with a deeper love, I think, than any one of us had. And it does not mean it has to turn sexual or erotic. Or my point of this is, is Solomon clung to Lisa love and it eventually turns his heart away from the Lord. And what I hear so often is this idea, but Josiah, I love them and God would not give me love and not want me to act on that. Again, Love does not mean it has to turn to something physical. Love does not mean that just because you love, now you can do whatever you want. There's this, again, there are, there are competing loves in our lives. God wants your love. You need to know that. God loves you unconditionally. God loves you, yes. But God also wants your love. Jesus said so clearly in John 14, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. In the next few verses, he says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Oh, I want to say, this is so cool. If you love Jesus, this is one of the most challenging verses I think in the Bible. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my word. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Do you love Jesus? If Jesus were to say, hey, do you love me? The answer is that, yeah, if you say yes, your lifestyle will back that up. My point is that God's like, I want your love. I love you. I want your love. 
there's a, there, now there's a, this is two competing ideas for your love. There's God who says, I love you and I want your love. And then there's essentially idolatry, which can take so many different forms. And basically it does demand love. Idolatry is such a weird word and term. I, I do get it. But it's such a weird thing for us because it basically does, it has, it, it promises everything God can only give you. It's like, if you serve me, I'll meet your deepest, and only God can give you those things, but idolatry promises you them and, and yet cannot fulfill it. I want us to see something that God is like, I, all, I too want your love. Listen, we don't always choose our tempta- t- temptations, but we always choose our reactions to those temptations. This is what we see with Solomon. He loved these women. You know, here's the idea. The, the main idea between Solomon and these women, um, it was for political alliances, right? You could say this is really wise. He could easily justify his decisions. He's like, but if I marry the uh, Ammonite and this woman of Egypt and this Sidonian, if I marry them, then I won't be at war with the nations around me. This is actually crazy wise in his mind. He could easily communicate this, guys, I need 700 wives because I've married all these women. Now we're at peace with 700 little mini nations all around us. Like, wow, Solomon, you're so brilliant. I know, I know. But it, it doesn't matter. It goes against God's word, right? It doesn't matter how he can justify it doesn't matter how he can explain it away. God's like, hey, the king shall not do this. Don't do this. Solomon knew this, and yet he gives into it. You can't choose what tempts you, but you can choose how, you're, how you respond to that. He gave in. He, cl- he clung to these in love. This is, this is the downfall. This is why I think Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude verse 21. There is this phrase, and again, I'm using verses that we don't like. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But there's basically this responsibility on our behalf to say, hey, I want to keep myself in the love. How do I keep myself in the love of God? Jesus says, well, if you love me, you'll obey me, and my Father's love will be with you, and I'll be with you. There's something about just saying, Jesus, I love you. I want to do what you say. Jesus, you know, idols demand my love, and they demand my obedience, which usually leads to slavery, which usually leads to pain, heartbreak. You demand my love, which leads to freedom and life everlasting, and a generous God, a loving God, a gracious God, your, your love sets me free. These loves bind me. Solomon's, I think, first issue was this. He, um, he loved these women more than he loved God. Is there anything right now in your life that you love more than God? Is there anything right now that takes priority in your life? If there is, that is an idol. An idol is something that takes the place of God. And this is what he's getting at. And you see the subtle kind of transition to this? It's crazy because, you know, it actually starts off with him maybe like, okay, you can do your own thing to maybe he starts to believe it to maybe he starts offering sacrifices. It's so subtle. You know, the, the Bible actually talks about the subtlety of sin and how it just kind of starts small and gross. You know, there's actually these different phrases. James 4 talks about friendship with the world. First uh, John 2 talks about loving the world. Romans 12 talks about being conformed to the world. And I kind of want to put this up because this is kind of how it starts. Like you're like friends with it. Like, you know, like I don't necessarily believe, it, but you're like friends with it. And then 1 John talks about he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, uh, is not of the Father. The idea, though, is like you're kind of friends with it, then you start to love it, and then Romans 12 is like you become conformed to it. Where he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you kind of see this progression of scripture of like, I'm friends with it, I love it, now I'm conformed to it. This is what's happening to Solomon. It's starting off small, but it's subtly growing. Listen, idols demand your love, but God too goes, hey, I love you with this unconditional love, and if you love me back, you'll keep my word. There's something saying, yes, this, this thing wants my love, but God also wants my love. And we see that it starts to kind of break from there. So number two is this, idols then divert your heart. Look at what it says in verse three. Verse three, what it says, uh, the end, it says, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse four, 
For when Saul was old, his wives turned away his heart after their gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Idols divert your heart. They take it from one direction to another. Verse three, I just want to put this verse up, like highlight. Uh, his wives turned away his heart. For in Solomon's old, his wives turned away his heart after their gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. Again, here's the irony in this passage. Here's why this is fascinating to me. Solomon is the guy who, once he was dedicating the temple, 1 Kings 8, he's dedicating it. There's a giant ceremony. Everyone's gathered together. Solomon gives this incredible warning in 1 Kings 8, 61. Solomon says, Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as, uh, as at this day. <laughs> Solomon's the one who literally says in front of everyone, hey, our hearts need to be watched out. Like, let your heart be holy on the Lord. And then it says in verse four, his heart wholly turned away from the Lord. He's the one that says, guys, guys watch out. Things are gonna wanna steal your heart. Pro- Solomon's the guy who wrote Proverbs 4, uh, 23, where he says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Think about this. Here's the guy who's like, that's one of the most well-known verses I feel like in Proverbs. Hey, keep your heart with all diligence. Like, do you know the heart, the heart, it's out of it flows the well, the springs of life, everything. Everything flows from the heart. And it says, and his heart turned wholly away from the Lord. I want us to see that this guy gave this warning and yet didn't take his own advice. Here's where maybe, maybe you're like with me. How does the wisest man who ever lived fail in this way? How does this man who writes Proverbs, writes Ecclesiastes, writes Song of Song, gets it. He knows, the, he knows the, the temptation, the snare. Like he knows all of the things that are trying to trap him up. How does he fall into this? The idea is, um, it's not just about being wise in mind, but it's about being pure in heart. It's not like just because you have the wisdom doesn't mean your heart believes it. Just because you might know it doesn't mean your heart gives into it. Jesus said this really clearly in Mark chapter seven. I want to put the verses up here. Jesus said in Mark seven, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile man. Jesus is the one that's like, just because you might know it, it doesn't matter. You have to guard your heart. Like, so Solomon might be wise in mind, but a fool in his heart. That's the idea. You can be wise in mind, but a fool in your heart. Jesus goes, it starts from within. Out of the heart proceed all these things. So again, it's great to be wise. It's great to read the Bible. It's great to have knowledge. It's great to explore these things. But we're not just told to love God with our mind. Yes, love God with your mind, but also love him with what? Love with all your heart. Yes, yes mind and soul and strength. But we, this, is where, this is where Solomon got it wrong. He loved God with his mind, but not his heart. Out of the heart come all these things. The Bible uses this phrase heart to talk about like the center of your being, who you are. Just The heart is just that core. Make, it just makes you, it's that DNA of you. And he goes, listen, out of the heart comes all these evil things. Out of the heart comes all of this, this sin he names. My hope is that you and I realize just because you know it doesn't mean you believe it. Just because you know it doesn't mean it's something that got into your heart. You know, there's something that actually what I believe in my mind, it must go down and move deep into my heart, deep into my being, deep into my person. Solomon, his heart was just persuaded away from the Lord. Um, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. I would highly recommend it. 
it was a pheno- it's a phenomenal book, and here's what he says about this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should lose it, your life feel hardly worth living. See, an idol is something that when you go, if I were to not get this or if I were to lose this, my life falls apart. If you feel like your emotions are tied to that thing in that extreme way, we're like, you know, if I don't get X, then life is just over. Then that is probably the God you're worshiping. You're, you know, if you hear people ever say this phrase, like, I could never forgive myself. What they're saying is, I failed my God. I can't believe I failed my God. I could never forgive myself. I failed my idol. The idol of how I appear to people. The idol of whatever. It's crazy because what's being said really is, you know, you're not worshiping the one true God who forgives you. You're worshiping something else. You're worshiping an idea, an image of who you think you are. Idols are so weird, guys. This is not something you like, okay, I got saved and no longer have these things. Like, I'm done. It's crazy how they pop up in so many different ways. You know, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about the difference between surface idols and deep idols. And I want us to like explore this. Surface idols and deep idols. Think about surface idols in your life. Then think about the deep idols that it reflects. So for example, you know, a surface idol could be like money, right? And, and your view of money. For some of you, like money is a way to just feel secure. I have money, so I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I have money. I'm good. I feel, I feel pretty good about my life. For others, money is like a way you might want, maybe want to live extravagantly. And maybe it's more like out there. People go, hey, there's something like boastful about this like way of living. And, but it's funny how both can reveal deep heart idols. So the surface idol might be like your view of money, but deeply down, like what is it really addressing? For some, it's like, man, I need, this is my God. And if everything falls apart, at least I have my God money. For others, it's maybe like power, influence. You want to be in the same room as certain people. It's just, we have these surface idols, but we have the deep idols. The idea is you might deal with the surface idol, but do you really, do you really get deep down to that deep idol that it's reflecting? Because deep idols try to use those surface idols to fulfill their wishes and desires. And this can come in so many different shapes and forms. My point is, if you think like, oh, I've dealt with this years ago, I'm done with this. Maybe you dealt with the surface idol, but maybe the deep idol, maybe that is still something you have to like, root out. The idea is it can plague us and haunt all of us in so many different ways and so many different capacities. I love what William Temple said about this. He says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. You're like, what do you do when you're alone? What does your mind go to? What do you think about? What do you daydream about? What do you imagine? Like, is there any space in there for God? Is there any space in there for Jesus? When you're like, I actually have some alone time. What am I going to do with this alone time? If you're a parent, you're like, I actually have some alone time. Like, what do you do? It's like, I'm just going to veg out. I'm like, what do you do? Do we have any prayer, any time for the Lord? That's like, he's basically saying, you know what your idol is by what you give your private time to. So what is your idol? You would know by what you give your private time to. What is that thing? What is that thing when you leave and you're at home alone and that's the first thing you go to? Maybe that's your idol. That, that thought that haunts you, maybe that's the thing that's plaguing you. This author said, um, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Questions bring some of people's idol systems to the surface. To who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions or similar ones tease out whether we serve God or idols, whether we uh, look for salvation from Christ or from false saviors. 
You know the difference, again, between like, what is your functional Savior? What is the thing you go to? Not just like, Jesus is my Savior, but what is the thing when your day's rough, it's awful, it's difficult, and you turn to what? What is that functional thing that you turn to for peace, for enjoyment, for satisfaction? Basically, this, this text to me is a warning for us of how do we not let these idols kind of grow in, into something else. So for example, by the way, I, I want to call them out because he does. There's like four idols mentioned. Two seem to be the same, but let me just kind of put this out there. Uh, the three idols that are mentioned. Ashtoreth, she's the goddess of sex and fertility. Uh, the worship of this goddess involved immorality and the worship of the stars. She was represented by the moon. Uh, you have Milcom, or also Melech. Uh, this was the, f- the fire god. Worship involved human sacrifices, especially children. Shemosh was the sun god, of, uh, the sun god and god of war. Worship of him was cruel and lewd. Here's the idea. Um, you see... This idea of worshiping the stars, sex and fertility, the fire god, offering up your children, uh, and then you have this god of war. The idols that, f- that Solomon fell into are not very uh, distant or unfamiliar with our world in our day. We still see this to this day in many different ways. We maybe don't go into a valley and offer up our, our, our children on fire, but we murder them in the wombs. We do different things, but the same thing in a different way. We still worship these gods, but just in a different way. We have to see it's like my pleasure, my success, what I feel. No, this thing's in the way. Okay, I'm gonna go to the fire god. Remove that. There, there is something about these idols still being carried out to this day, just in different forms. Psalm is trying to address this. Psalm is actually bringing this into his life and now offering up sacrifices to this. And we, we, we're told this, like, this is interesting. Who, who did this? Solomon. When I, when I actually read this, this is what's fascinating to me. Who sinned here? Um, who sinned? The wisest of men. Who sinned here? The most favored and enlightened of men. The builder of the temple. A man who warned others. See, I want you to see this because this is not like for someone else. Who sinned? This is the guy that wrote the book of Proverbs. This guy is the one offering up children to the fire god. This guy, the wisest guy, the one who God appeared to him twice in Revelations. We're actually told that David never really had that same experience that Solomon did. Two unique revelations or manifestations of God to Solomon. This is the guy who did this. If you think this applies to someone else today, you're missing it. This does not apply to someone else. This is one of those texts for me. I'm reading, I'm like, oh, Lord, when did he sin? Do you guys know when he sinned? As an old man, look, we're trying to write, when did he sin? When he was old, when his riches had increased and he was successful, when his prosperity was at the highest, and after repeated warnings, when did he sin? This is an old guy who probably for years did some really good things. After chapter three to chapter 11, did some pretty good stuff. But this is the guy when he was old, when he thought, no, 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 no. You deal with that in your youth. I'm not in my 30s, not in my 40s, not my 50s, not my 60s, not my 70s, not my 80s. This is the guy. Don't think this doesn't apply to you. We, we can't fall into that trap. This is the guy who had everything. He's at the height of his ministry, you could say. And this is when he fell. This is the guy who, after repeated warnings from God and two revelations, my point is we have to see who this was, when this was. This is not for someone else. Here's what it says in Colossians 3. All right, I want to read this because Colossians 3 actually does bring into this idea of idolatry and I think this is so necessary. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let me just be really clear. Do you get this? He's going, hey, you want to know what idolatry is? He goes, it's, it's, not just, it's not just physical things. It's things that live in your heart. Sexual morality, evil desire, passion, covetousness. He goes, put away these things. And the, here's the question I want to get to, because I'm only doing like diagnosis right now, right? The love thing, the heart thing, we're diagnosing this problem. But what's the prognosis? Like how, how, how do I put this away? If you feel like, yeah, Josiah, I've tried, but a new idol springs up. 
Like, it's just impossible. I'm constantly fighting this. Listen, it's not enough just to recognize the idols in your life, all right? It's not just enough to repent of the idols in your life. There is this combination we see in Scripture of repent and replace, Repent, remove, and replace it with the one true God. Okay, so maybe you're serving something, right? And it's taking that place in your life. You can't just be like, oh, this idol, God, help me. It's like, how do I replace it with a better thing, with the one true thing, with God himself? So here's what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4, right before all this. In Colossians 3, verse 1, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you hear this? How? Put to death these things. How? If you've been raised with Jesus, seek the things that are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. How do I get rid of this? Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. He's basically live for Jesus, live for heaven, live for eternity. If you've been born again, live for that place, live for that home. You can't make your home here. This is a dangerous place to make your home. He goes, no, no, we're pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're just traveling through. We're citizens of heaven. So the idea is, how do you fight idols? You can't just, it's not enough to remove them. You have to remove and replace. I'd say this, this is so important. Replace it with Jesus. Replace it with heaven, eternal things. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these other things. Like, seek first this. My hope for us today, church, is recognize, listen, it's not if you have an idol. Everyone here has idols. I have idols. I have constantly new things that creep into my heart. And I have to go, hey, this is weird. Help me. Talk to friends. Talk to people. Pray. Seek the Lord. But I have, there's this idea of like, hey, I have to acknowledge this. Something's constantly trying to take the throne of God in my life. So set your mind on things above. Seek first the kingdom of God. He goes, don't live for things that are here. Live for things that are up there. Have eternity on the forefront of your mind. See, I, see for Solomon, he, he loved it. His heart was turned away from it. He said, guard your heart with all diligence. And yet he didn't. I think this is such a warning to all of us because it's not just, okay, someone else will sin and fall. This does not apply to me. Here's a guy in his old age at the height of his life. This is when he fell. And so God says, all right, Solomon, I'm going to have to divide your house now. Number three is this, idols divide, uh, div- idols divide your house. Verse nine, he says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Verse 11, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my co- covenant, and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. All right, stay with me on this. Obviously, this ended up dividing his house. He gave into this. God's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I've appeared to you twice. I love how one author said this. He says, miraculous manifestations do not produce spiritual maturation. Meaning, just because you've experienced God in a powerful way does not mean you're guaranteed to be spiritually mature. Just because you go, I've experienced God in so many profound ways. Awesome. That does not make you spiritually mature. But he's like, this one, Solomon, you're the one that I've chosen. You're the one that I appeared to. Solomon, if if you wholly served me like your father David, this would not happen. And he goes, you know what? So you're going to lose a kingdom yet, yet for your father's sake, for your father David's sake. It won't be in your lifetime. It'll be with your son. As soon as we see him pass away in chapter 12, that's when we see all this begin. The the kingdom just splits in half. 
everything God warned him is about to take place. God raises up Hadad the Edomite. He raises up a, a, a Gentile, and he raises up a, a Jewish person. It's all to basically go against him. You see three different men, three different groups of people, an Edomite, a Gentile, a Jew, all come against him. It's, it's fascinating because you see Herod, King Herod with Jesus, he was an Edomite. You have the Romans, you have, G- you have Gentiles, and you have the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jews. You, you kind of see this being repeated in another way with Jesus. But you see this come against Solomon. In verse 11, here's why this happened. It says, since this has been your practice, you practice this. It's not like, oh, Solomon blew it here and there. Like, no, this was your lifestyle. The, the, the New Testament uses the same phrase, by the way. We just read it in Colossians, but he uses this phrase of, he who practices these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like this idea, is this your lifestyle? Is this your practice? Solomon, this has been your lifestyle. It's not like you blew it here and there. This is your lifestyle. You fully committed, gave yourself over to this way of living. Because you've practiced this, I'm taking this away. We have to be aware of the warning that's given to Solomon. He goes, yet for your, da- for your father's sake, for David's sake, I will not do it in your lifetime. David is such a wonderful picture of Jesus in this moment. It's almost like there would be wrath on Solomon if it wasn't for someone else who stood in the gap. There would be wrath right now on you in this way, but there's someone who I'm, I'm going to honor on your behalf. And it's like a small little taste. It's not fully that, but it's a small little taste of the gospel. Yet for David's sake, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's still going to happen. But David's such a picture, small reflection of Jesus in that moment. And he says, yet for David's sake. Here's the thing that I want to just simply look at today. And I want to end with this thought. Um, There's a lot of dialogue. I've talked to a lot of people about this. You know, it's funny. Um, Did Solomon ever return to the Lord? Did Solomon ever, is Solomon in heaven? Let's put it that way. People ask this a lot. Is Solomon in heaven? (sighs) I don't know. I'm not God. Um, But let me say this. Like, as we kind of look at this, did Solomon turn to the Lord? The scary thing is we really don't know. It kind of ends this dramatic, he served after the other gods. His heart was turned away from the Lord. But didn't Solomon write Ecclesiastes? Yeah. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And he looks back at life and goes, vanity of vanity, everything's vain. Everything's meaningless. Like, what's the point of this? Solomon ends Ecclesiastes by saying this. This is fascinating to me. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. Solomon ends the book by like, you want to know how to live life? Fear God, keep his commandments. This is what life's about. And like, was Ecclesiastes written after this? There's debate. <laughs> My point of bringing this is up is this. Um, Solomon ended his life as a question mark. My thing is, do not end your life as a question mark. I have my thoughts on how Solomon ended. I think 1 Kings 11 is how he ended. I don't know if he repented, but I also could be wrong. Maybe Ecclesiastes came after. Maybe Ecclesiastes, he realized, Lord, I've missed it. It's all been vain. I want to fear you. But can I tell you, we really don't know. You can read 25 different commentaries and find guys who say, no, no, Solomon repented. No, no, he didn't. We don't know. What do we learn from that? Solomon ended his life as a giant question mark. Please do not end your life as a giant question mark. Please have no one be like, I don't know. Maybe they love Jesus. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they repent. Maybe they didn't. I don't, I don't know. This is a really, this is a huge wake up. I want to look at Solomon's life or Samson's life. These people are like, I don't know. They kind of finished well. Maybe they, I don't know. Maybe they're not. Like, I want to look at these people's lives and go, I actually don't want that though. I don't want to be obscure, unknown, but did they really believe? Here's a guy who wrote a lot of Bible and yet we don't know if his heart ever returns to the Lord. It doesn't say he repented. He ends up dying. His kingdom ends up being split. If you guys remember, there's another king. We'll read about him, but his name's Hezekiah. He's going to repent. God's like, you repented. I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do because you repented. I don't know. I think if, if Solomon actually repented, would God have treated Solomon like he does Hezekiah? Maybe. My point of just bringing this up is we just don't know, and it's such a weird spot to end. It's such a weird spot to be in. And all I can say is this. His life ends with this giant question mark kind of hanging over it. 
And I would say there's been too many people I've known in life where I go, when they died and passed away, you're like, there's some people you're like, oh my gosh, they are a follower of Jesus and they're all in and this is so beautiful and such an easy memorial. There's been others who as clear as day, they didn't believe in Jesus and it was sad and heartbreaking. There's been others who are also in this weird spot where it ends with like a question mark and you're like, I don't know. That's a weird thing. Don't be in that. Don't be in this like, maybe they're in, maybe they're not. I don't know. They said this, but then they did this. Solomon ends his life in that way. And I would just say this for us church, listen. Idols will divide your house eventually. Idols will tear apart your life eventually. Idols will take everything God, good God has given you and just corrupt it. So repent of it. Replace it with something better, with King Jesus. Here's the Jesus who's so unlike Solomon, who basically didn't, you know, exchange his soul for the world in this way, in the way Solomon did. But he gave his soul, in a sense, for us. So for the, God so loved the world he gave it. Jesus like, I'm going to be the greater than Solomon who's going to give it up, all up for you. This guy gave up the Lord for the world. Jesus like, I'm going to give it all up for you, to win you. My thing is like, I want to learn from this guy, Solomon. I don't want idols to creep in this way. I don't want to just be friends with it or tolerate it, and then I eventually I adopt it. It becomes my life, and then it corrupts my house. Be aware of idols. Keep yourselves, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God. How? Keep your eyes steadfast on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the author of it. He's the finisher of it. So keep your eyes steadfast on Jesus. John Newton, the slave trade owner to future pastor, evangelist, abolitionist, John Newton basically famously said, said the hardest thing about being a Christian is just keeping your eyes on Jesus. I can die to myself. That's, that's easy. But keeping my eyes on Jesus, being focused on Jesus, making him the center point, that's, that's the thing. I'll say this, remove and replace with something better, and that is King Jesus. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Yes, amen. We're just going to worship. We're going to turn this in time and say, Jesus, take that place. Hey, I'd actually love it if we could turn this in time of prayer. If you have things you want to confess, if you have things that are like creeping into your life, and you'd like to come up here and pray with myself or other leaders, please do. But let's just kind of turn this into maybe even at your seat, where you're standing, where you're sitting, and just like, Lord, I surrender this. This is take, this is crept in my life. This is taken over, and I just want you, Jesus, to be back on the throne. So let's just do that. Let's just turn this into a time of prayer and worship and just giving this over to the Lord. So Father, we just want to say thank you for your son, Jesus. Because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Because Jesus, though we fail, you have not failed us. Though we have things take over just our life, God, we thank you, Jesus, that when you who are our life appears, we also will appear with you in glory. That there is this promise that Jesus, if you are our life, when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. We say thank you for that truth that Jesus, would you be our life? Would you be our king? Would you be in that rightful place? Lord, ask for myself, for everyone here, Jesus, give us strength in those moments where things want to crowd out, crowd you out. God, I just ask that you would, um, that you'd bring healing right now, that you bring restoration right now, that Jesus, if there's something or anything that has just taken your place, that you just remove that. So Father, we just want to thank you we want to look to you. God, we just, we just desire mercy. We ask for your grace. We ask for your spirit, Lord. God, we ask for strength and power that can only come from you. We cannot do this without you. But Lord, we believe your grace is sufficient for us. God, we believe that your strength is made perfect in our weakness, and we ask God that though we are weak, that you'd be strong. So Lord, help us to learn from Solomon. We don't want to gain the world and lose our soul in the process. So Jesus, we look to you. We thank you that you gave it all up for us, for the world.
In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. If you want to stand, stand. If you want prayer, come up for prayer, but we're just going to end with some worship.